Good morning, my name is Jill. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 10. Then you should solemnly state before the Lord your God, My father was a starving Aramean, and he went down to Egypt, living as an immigrant there with few family members. But that is where he became a great nation, mighty and numerous. The Egyptians treated us terribly, oppressing us and forcing hard labor on us. So we cried out for help to the Lord, our ancestors' God. The Lord heard our call, and God saw our misery, our trouble, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with awesome power and with signs and wonders. He brought us up to this place and gave us this land, a land full of milk and honey. So now I am bringing the early produce of the fertile ground that you, Lord, have given me. Set the produce before the Lord your God, bowing down before the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. Hi, good morning. My name is Cor. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Brothers and sisters, I want to call your attention to the good news that I preach to you, which you also received and in which you stand. You are being saved through it if you hold on to the message I preach to you, unless somehow you believe it for nothing. I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day in line with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once. Most of them are still alive to this day, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as if I were born at the wrong time. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mary. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 24. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and a change of heart and life for the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Look, I'm sending to you what my father promised, but you are to stay in the city until you have been furnished with heavenly power. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are the God who delivered Israel from Egypt, that you are the God who raised your son Jesus from the dead, that you are the God who sends your Holy Spirit to your people. And we pray as your sons and daughters gathered here today that you would continue to speak to us, you continue to show yourself to us, that by your Spirit you would open our ears to hear your words that you would open our minds to understand and that you would do the kind of work 
in us that you and only you can do. Change us into the image and likeness of Jesus that we might go from this place to live out our lives as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. 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 You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. Summer has officially arrived in Colorado, finally. I see a number of hand fans. If you're looking for those, they're in the lobby outside if you're needing a way to stay a little bit cooler this morning. Uh, My name is Jason Jackson. I'm the associate pastor here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is preaching in New York City today. He is at our dear friend Rich Velotis' church. Rich pastors a church called New Life Fellowship, which has actually had a really profound impact uh, on us here at New Life Downtown. That church was founded by a guy named Peter Scazzaro and his wife, Jerry. And several years ago, they put together some resources, some books that became uh, a set of courses known as the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Courses. This is one of the kind of cornerstones for us of life downtown, is what does it mean for us to put practices in place that help us to love God and practices in place that help us to love others. And actually, it's those resources that inspired our summer preaching series. So our summer sermon series is called The Whole Life, a series on integrated spirituality. And it's coming out of some of the things they talk about in some of their material that are based around an ancient practice called a rule of life. Now, a rule of life is basically sort of a constellation of practices that we put in place in our lives, rhythms and disciplines and habits that help us to experience the love of God in every area of our life and live out of the love of God in every area of our life and focuses on the sense that our faith in Jesus is not something that exists for like the, you know, little time that we're spending alone in prayer and on Sunday mornings, but it's actually infectious that our faith in Jesus should actually infect every area of our life. And so we're going to be talking through this series about the ways that we experience the love of God through prayer last week, through reading scripture this week, but also then how does that impact the way that we work? We're going to spend two weeks talking about what is the relationship between our faith and our work. We're going to spend several weeks talking about the relationship between faith and our relationships or marriage and singleness and friendship, and then talking about faith in its relationship to our rest and our play, that even our faith in Jesus influences how we approach those things. So we kicked off the sermon series last week with Pete, Greg. If you missed it, please get the podcast uh, and listen to our dear friend from across the pond talking about how we recenter our lives on the presence of Jesus through prayer. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk about today about reading Scripture, about reading the Bible. And if you've been around church for very long at all, there are probably no two practices that are talked about or encouraged as much as praying and reading the Bible. If you're going to ask someone, well, what do Christians do? Well, Christians pray, and they read the Bible, and they go to church. Like, there's just this kind of sense that this is what we do. In fact, we tell small children, read your Bible and pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. But what's interesting is we actually spend surprisingly little time talking about how do we read the Bible. (laughs) We just sort of assume, we tell people, hey, read it. And then it's as simple as just like opening it up and starting to read. Like, oh, that's all there is to it. But if you're like me, most of us probably in trying to read the Bible don't get very far before we're confused 
or bored or discouraged or angry. I can't tell you the number of times that I have woken up with a drool spot on my Bible, just falling asleep and then waking up later and I go, oh, I guess my time's done for the day. (laughs) And on more than one occasion, I have taken the Bible and thrown it across the room. I have been that angry in the midst of reading the scriptures. And chances are, if you experience anything like that, what tends to happen for us is that we, we know that we're supposed to read the Bible, and it sounds so simple, and then it ends up not being simple. So then we start to wonder, okay, well, maybe the problem's with me. Like, oh, I must be the problem, and so something needs to be fixed here. Or we just don't want to talk about it because everybody else seems to be reading the Bible and nobody else seems to be having any problems. And so we just stop reading. We're like, ah, I just, I'm just going to give up. Or we, you know, just reread the parts that make the most sense to us, all right? So we read the New Testament over and over and over again, and we read, you know, the Old Testament. It looks like it's brand new, like it's, the pages have never been wrinkled before, right? It's like, I don't know what to do with Leviticus, so I'm going to stick over here with John. I like that guy. And so we read the parts that are best, you know, or the, that make the most sense to us. Or what we do is we start adopting, like, tactics, of, you know, like strategies. And the most common of being which is, I'm just going to open and point and then start to read. I don't, I don't know what else to do. So God, you're going to have to take over here. What do you have to say to me today? And we kind of adopt these kinds of things. So we're not really sure where do we move forward with the scriptures. So if we're honest, though, the Bible is really difficult to read. And it's actually possible to misinterpret, to misunderstand, to not sure exactly what to do with this. The good news is, is the Bible itself actually says the Bible is difficult to understand. In writing in 2 Peter, Peter's talking to a, a community, and he's talking about his dear friend Paul. And he says, Paul, in all of his letters, some of which are difficult to understand. <laughs> she is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Peter just being honest. Yeah, my buddy Paul over here, I don't know what he's saying all of the time. And I don't either. (laughs) I'm like reading Romans and going, "Uh uh-huh. Next book, please. Right? So, and this is Peter. Peter who walked with Jesus. Peter who lived at the same time, lived in the same place, lived in the same culture, and spoke the same language as Paul, he finds Paul hard to understand. And here we are, a couple thousand years later, we don't live in the same place, we don't live at the same time, we don't live in the same culture, and we don't speak the same language. And yet we assume this is going to be easy for us. But we have a lot of barriers to kind of overcome, things that actually can make it difficult to read and hard to understand. And so we actually have to talk more about how how do we actually read this book? What do we do with this great gift? And so this morning, I'm not going to be able to address all of the nuances and issues kind of associated uh, with that. I just hope to start a conversation. I think that's actually what really good sermons do. Not that this is a really good sermon, but my hope is always that it's a good sermon, Um, is that they start a conversation, that we don't finish one, that we start one. And I want to try to tackle three questions today. The first one is, what is the Bible? The second is, why do we read it? And the third is, how do we read it? So what is the Bible? 
why do we read it and how do we read it? So the first one, what is the Bible? The reason I want to start with that question is, is how we read is actually largely determined by what we are reading. We read a recipe differently than we read a novel. We approach it differently because of what it is. We read a tweet differently than we read a poem. That what it is actually impacts the way that we read. So talking about what the Bible is is actually a critical conversation. And the Bible is not really like any other book. It's rather atypical. We think about the Bible is more, it's not really so much a book as it is an ancient library that we have in it, depending upon how we number the books, 66 books written by over 40 different authors in three different languages over the course of over a thousand year period of time in multiple geographic locations. Do you know any other book like that? That is a, a lot of dynamics kind of at play. And not only that, but it contains all sorts of different types of literature. It contains stories and songs and proverbs and prophecies and apocalyptic images about multiple winged creatures with eyes. And you're going, I don't read anything like this anywhere else in my life except here. We've got all of those dynamics. But as Christians, we don't simply believe that the Bible is the nature library. For us, it is profoundly more than that. Because for us, we believe that these writings are actually inspired by God. Second Timothy puts it this way. It says, every scripture is inspired by God. It is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character. So that everyone who belongs to God, so that all of God's people may be proficient, equipped for every good work. That we believe that these writings, these words are inspired by God and important, critical, and essential for us to be the people of God and to live as his people in the world. We believe there's something profoundly more. That word inspired literally means it's God-breathed. It's a way of saying that the origin of these words is divine. One scholar says that the Bible is God's word in human words. It's God's word, but yet God chooses to speak through all of these authors and all these genres and all these times and periods. He doesn't bypass humanity, but incorporates us into the scriptures themselves. The Bible, we can look at it this way, that we believe that God... That our God, that Yahweh himself, has made himself known in history. That we have a God who actually wants to be known. He wants to be in relationship with us, so he makes himself known. He makes himself known in history to particular people, through particular events, living in particular places at particular times. God shows up and he does things. He reveals himself but then that self-disclosure gets recorded and collected in the Bible. And then we believe that all of those people who were part of the passing on and writing down and collecting and editing and arranging and finalizing and all of the stuff that goes into us, you know, having a book in our hand, that all of that was guided by the Spirit himself. 
divine origin and human participation and the Holy Spirit mysteriously, graciously active through the entire process so that the Bible doesn't simply become a record of God's revelation, but becomes a means of it. That God continues to make himself known through the scriptures, that he continues to show us who he is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he plans yet to do. So in short, we could say that the Bible tells God's story, that this is fundamentally what the Bible does. With all of these sort of nuances and things, the Bible is telling the story of God, telling us the story of the God who made everything and made it good and made us in his image and his likeness, invited us into relationship with him and creation to be those that bear his image in the world and show the world that what he is like, the God who invited us into all of this, but we decided we wanted to live by a different story. We bought into a lie about God, a lie about uh, ourselves and began to live in a different way. We rebelled and everything went crazy. But God didn't give up. It was the God who began a restoration process. He wanted to restory us and the world. And so he, he came to a person named Abraham and all of his descendants to start his work of reclaiming all the things that are his and renewing them and remaking them, revitalizing them so they could be everything he intended them to be. And he brought that work to completion in Jesus and he continues it in his church through the Holy Spirit. And one day he's gonna come and finish it and everything is gonna be right and good and new again. That's the story the Bible's telling. It's all in there. It's this beautiful gift of grace to us telling us God's story. So if that's what it is, if the Bible tells God's story, how do we read it? Or why do we read it? What would be the importance of reading that for us? Because how we read is not only determined by what we're reading, it's also determined by why we're reading something. Why we're reading actually has a great bearing on how we approach something. When we read a novel, we're primarily reading it for pleasure. Or an assignment if you got it in school and, you know, but later on you'll read for pleasure again. Uh, but we pick up novels to like be immersed, to read for pleasure, for enjoyment. We read Instagram simply for lunch ideas. It's like, what am I going to have to eat today? We read instruction manuals only because everything else we tried didn't work. Right? So it's like last resort, I've got to go to this thing. I've unplugged and reset too many times. I don't know what else to do. So we turn the instruction manual. People read the Bible actually for a variety of reasons. There are people that read the Bible simply because they want to know one perspective of history. There are other people that read the Bible just because they want to know what Christians think about God. They have no sort of relationship to God or his people. They're just interested in the Bible as a literary artifact, as an ancient library. But we believe it's so much more than that. Others read the Bible for inspiration or for wisdom or for strategies or for secret power or you know, all sorts of different reasons that we approach this. But what's the primary reason Christians read? What's the, what's the main, why do we read this book? Why is it that we say you read your Bible and pray every day? Why do we encourage it to that sense? I think for Christians, the primary reason that we read the scriptures is we read God's story in order to participate in it. 
that we read God's story in order to enter it, to become a part of it, to live it in our own lives. We read it so that it actually becomes our story, that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. So the truth is our lives themselves are an ongoing narrative. Our lives are a story. When we meet people and we're sitting down for a cup of coffee, we say, hey, tell me your story. And we start somewhere and then we tell people up to the point we're at right now, knowing that the story's not finished yet. And yet, all of our stories are set within larger narratives. They're not simply self-authored. They don't sort of exist in a vacuum. But instead, they're part of larger narratives. And these larger narratives are oftentimes competing and contradictory to one another. That they're not actually saying the same thing. And it's from these larger narratives that we get our sense of identity and meaning and significance. Who we are. How do we understand ourselves? How do we understand our stories? We're often looking outside to help give a sense to our identity, a sense to a meaning for the life that we're living to try to determine how is it that we are going to live? What is it the decisions that we're going to make about our ethics, about the way that we're going to live? We look to larger stories to be able to help give us those things to make sense of and to guide us. And the question for us then is often, which story will we live into and out of? What will be the dominant narrative in our lives? Because the narratives are competing, they're contradictory, and they're competing for our allegiance. They want us to live our life under them. Each story is trying to shape us in a very distinctive way. The best analogy I could come up for this was which is possibly the greatest trilogy ever created. Toy Story. Now, I know there's a fourth movie. I've seen it. Jury's still out for me right now. I was nervous all week about them making a fourth one. Kind of felt like an economic con. Um, but, you know, uh, get, give me another month or two and I'll tell you what I think of the movie. But in the Toy Story in this initial trilogy, what we often see is this sense of competing narratives. That when we enter, enter into Toy Story 1, we're introduced to Buzz Lightyear. Buzz is convinced that he is a space ranger sent to protect the galaxy from the evil Emperor Zerg. And then he sees a commercial and he realizes, oh, you're not the real Buzz Lightyear. You're an action figure, right? And he got, his life spirals. He's like, no way, this is a real laser, not a light that blinks. He doesn't know what to do. And so Woody and others come alongside him and begin to restory Buzz. They're like, no, 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 you're even better. You're Andy's toy, right? And Buzz starts to make a new sense of his identity from a new narrative. And he tries to live that out. And Toy Story 2, I'm only going to do the first two. I'm not going to go any further than that. In Toy Story 2, Woody has this moment where he discovers that he is a rare collectible doll, from this like 1950s short run Woody's like TV show. And he is also the missing piece to this person's collection. And so all of these toys are trying to convince Woody to stay a part of the collection and go with them to a museum in Japan. Because then think about how significant that is. Think about how important you are. 
They begin to tell Woody, like, no, this is, you're rare, you're important, your value and significance comes from being a part of this collection and going to this museum where all these thousands of people can come and look at you. It's a temptation to a different definition of significance than what it means to be Andy's toy. And so the narratives compete, and Woody is trying to figure out, which story am I going to live by? In the same way, the same thing happens in our own lives. Our families of origin give us a story. Our nation gives us a story. Our economic practices and advertisers give us a story. Other people are giving us stories. Our jobs are giving us stories. And they're all competing with one another. The question is, which one are we going to live out of? Which one will we live into? We see examples of this in the scriptures, that in the scriptures we see these moments of times where people are making sense of their lives in light of the whole story. In our Old Testament reading today from the book of Deuteronomy, there's this passage that talks about what they should do when they enter into the land, particularly what farmers should do with the first fruits of their produce. So as they collect the first harvest, what should they do? And the instruction is to bring that to the temple and offer it to God in worship. But they don't just simply do that. There's a prayer given. That prayer is a story. My father was a wandering Aramean taking and recognizing, oh wait, my story doesn't begin here with me like owning this plot of land and planting the seed and doing everything I need to be and you know, in order to make this and this story is all about me and what I produce. He's like, oh wait a minute. No, my father, Abraham, was a wandering Aramean and my people, we ended up in Egypt, but God rescued us out of that place and made covenant to be our God. And he brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and he brought us into this land and he gave this to me. And so now I'm bringing it to him. It makes sense of farming life and worship by the story. In Luke chapter 24, the disciples are distraught because Jesus has been killed. They don't know he's been raised from the dead yet. And they're walking to the road on the road to Emmaus and they're like, downcast. Jesus sneaks up behind him, says, hey guys, what's going on? (laughs) They're like, haven't you heard? And they tell the story of Jesus, but they get it wrong. They're like, we had hoped. And Jesus goes to Moses and the prophets and he restories them. And he says, no, 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 no. This is what happened. This is the story that God's telling. And then later on, when he appears to them later, he does the same thing. He restories, and then he tells them, oh, and by the way, you are witnesses. Now go and tell. He completely changes the narrative and gives them a new sense of identity and meaning and purpose and says, live out of this. That's why we read the scriptures, to be reminded of God's story and what our role is within it. We read not primarily to know God's story, but to actually enter into it, to become a part of it, to participate as God's people, to know who he is, who we are, and how we live within the story that he is telling N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, put it this way. He said, we read scripture in order to be refreshed in our memory, an understanding of the story within which we ourselves are actors. We read to be reminded of where the story has come from, where it is going to, and hence what our own part within it ought to be. I love that. We read so that we make sure that the dominant narrative of our lives is the story that God is telling. 
we make sense of who we are and how we live in the context of his story. So if the Bible tells God's story and we read it in order to participate in it, how does that then shape how we read it? How do we then just practically go about doing this? And so I have just four, four thoughts today, four uh, quick thoughts on some things to keep in mind as we read the story that I hope will help. First one is, is we, we read habitually. There is actually something to the read your Bible and pray every day thing. There's something important about habit. And so when I say read habitually, do whatever helps you to read the Bible consistently. Do whatever helps you. Pick a translation that you enjoy. For me, in my devotional reading right now, I read from the Common English Bible. It's a newer translation, so it takes into account the ways that English language has changed, takes into account the things that we know about ancient languages that have changed as we keep learning more and more things, and um, is written by a collection of scholars from a variety of different theological backgrounds and those things, and is written at an eighth grade reading level, so it's written to be easy to read. And so I just enjoy reading it. So choose a translation that you enjoy reading. And then pick a time of day that you're most likely to read. I don't do well early in the morning or late at night. And I felt guilty about that for a long time. People saying, well, you got to get in the morning. The first thing you need to do is read your Bible. And I would, and I would fall asleep almost every time. So I'm much better like later in the day after I've had a cup of coffee, after I've exercised, and I can just sort of like, okay, I'm awake and I can center in and actually read. If you're not a reader, listening to audio is okay. If that's better for you, listening to it in the car with James Earl Jones, like whatever, like if that works, go for it, lean into it. And then pick a plan or rhythm that works for you. Uh, some people love like the read the Bible in a year plan. I'm terrible with that plan. I've failed more. I just finally gave up. Like, I, I just, it didn't work for me and I kept feeling guilty about it. So I just stopped. Um, if you like the little old, little new, you know, Psalm, Proverb, if that works for you, do it. If there's something else that works better, do that. I like to read like one book at a time and just kind of focus like, oh, I'm reading this book right now. Because that helps me to kind of like pick up on what that whole book is trying to say and to kind of make all the connections in those things. So, uh, but overall, be honest and be gentle with yourselves. Be honest and be gentle. Sometimes we think when we're talking about Bible reading, we think the most important thing is getting through as much of the Bible as possible. It's not as important how much of the Bible you get through as how much of the Bible gets through you. That's way more important. If you read two verses and they sink in, that's way better than reading 20 chapters that you can't remember. So be honest, be gentle, but be habitual. Read consistently. Second thing is to read holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Read holy. When I was a youth pastor, I had an opportunity to go and do some guest teaching at a local Christian school um, and go in and do a lot of Bible classes with them, just kind of help out their Bible faculty. And I remember one time going into this classroom of eighth graders, and it was very clear from the start they had no interest in me or whatever I was going to talk about. Uh, I think we were talking about the book of Luke, and they were just completely bored out of their minds. And so in a rare moment when I had a good idea, I just stopped and I said, okay, like how many of you just like heard this before? 
And these are eighth grade kids at a Christian school. Most of them had grown up in church. All their hands just like pop up. Yeah, we already know all this, right? They're like, ah, we've heard this before. We know all this. And then I said, okay, how many of you have ever read one gospel all the way through? All the hands go down. See, for some of us, a familiarity with the Bible causes us to actually stop reading, to think that we actually know it. The familiarity is some sort of breed, some sort of like complacency or contempt for us. We're like, yeah, I just don't want anything to do with that. And we think that we've actually know the whole thing. And the truth is we know little parts, the parts that we've heard in our like kids' story Bible and kids' ministry here. And, you know, we've just kind of picked up little things along the way. And there's so much more there. So read holy. And what I mean by that is read the whole Bible. I can tell you the more you often and more consistently read the Old Testament, the more the New Testament will make sense. You'll be like, oh, wait a minute. That's what they're talking about. I remember. Oh, this is from there. And all of a sudden things will start to pop that never popped before. Read the whole Bible. Read whole books. Read whole letters. Can you imagine writing a letter to a family member or a friend? Like you write this whole letter, you know, 10 pages, and then like read like, uh, you know, the first paragraph on Tuesday and then the second paragraph next November. But that's how we read Paul in his letters most of the time, right? If you have a day where you can sit down and read like one gospel, one letter, one, like read the whole thing all the way through and see what happens. Is they're actually meant to be read as wholes. And then that actually helps us to read each part in light of what came before it and what comes after it. Helps us to read what we call a read in context, reading and seeing all the other things. The best way to interpret the Bible, to understand the Bible, is with the Bible. It's to actually let the Bible help you read the Bible. To say, oh, I don't really understand this verse here. Well, what was said before and what was said after? And what was said in other books by this same author? And what was said within the full New Testament, the full Old Testament? How do these things kind of relate? And then all of a sudden those passages start to make more sense in light of the whole. We tend to treat the Bible as pieces or parts, as verses, rather than as books or as a library. And it makes it really difficult to read in that sense. So read habitually, read wholly. Number three, read humbly. When I was a new Christian, I became a Christian at the end of high school, and I remember going to youth group and going to church and going to Bible studies, and frequently people saying like, well, and you all know the story, and they would like shorthand something, and I'd look around. <laughs> I don't. Clearly everybody else does, but I don't know, and honestly, it was a huge gift, because it would cause me either to say, wait, I don't know, can you tell me? So I can actually learn the story or it would cause me to go back and read it. And what I found later on was actually that a lot of the people I was in the room with didn't know the story either. But there's something about us pridefully that says, oh, we should know this. We should know this by now. So we need to pretend like we're more Bible experts than we are. It's not helpful. 
It's not helpful to pretend that we don't have challenges reading the Bible, that it's hard to read the Bible. We have all these things to overcome with language and culture and geography and history and all of those kinds of things. It's, it's not actually helpful for us. So reading humbly is admitting that we actually need a lot of help, that it's not as simple as just open and read. We can do that and the Spirit will speak to us and grace us and all those things, but to have a deeper experience of the Scriptures, it's more helpful to read humbly and ask for help. To say, what do I actually need here right now? And a couple of things that I found to be really helpful is to read the Bible with the creeds in mind. So the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, which we repeat sometimes here in service, are something that the church developed the same time they finalized which books were going to be in the Bible to say, hey, if you read the Bible and you come to different conclusions than this, something's gone wrong. So we read with the creeds to make sure that, hey, we're getting the story right. And so we read with that in mind. We read with trusted resources, with resources that we know are helpful. I tend to turn, when I'm looking for resources, I turn to scholars who love Jesus and love the church. There's a lot of people out there who did PhDs in New Testament and Old Testament and have no interest in Jesus or his people. They, they actually just had interest in disproving things. And so they went and got PhDs in it. But when I find scholars who love Jesus and love his people, those are helpful resources. Or when I find Christian pastors, Christian leaders, other followers of Jesus who are committed to learning all that they can and then writing out of that, as opposed to just thinking that, you know, I've got it all figured out. But those that are learners, those that are looking to people who are way smarter than them and saying, I want to read with the help of all of those folks. So I look for those resources. One that I would recommend to you is something called The Bible Project. Uh, if you haven't looked at The Bible Project before, it's a website that's got blogs and videos and podcasts and those things. But one of the great things they have are these videos and posters that tell you kind of the story of an entire book. They tell you how the book is structured. So you can kind of see how each part fits into the whole. And there are these little five to seven minute videos that give you kind of a summary of the book before you go into it. And they're fantastic. They're by a couple of Multnomah grads. So Jay and Evan, you know, vouched for them. I don't know, but uh, no, it's, it's fantastic stuff. Or the seminary I went to, Asbury Seminary, puts out this Bible study called One Book. And it's written by scholars and pastors who love Jesus, love the church, and just want to help people read particular books. I got a chance to do a volume in there for Amos. And there's a bunch of other ones where you can just have a little bit of reading help to say, hey, here's some things that will help you understand this passage. Um, so read with the creeds, read with trusted resources, and read with faithful friends. I don't know if there's anything better than that. We sometimes, the Bible is deeply personal, but we sometimes think it, that means it's private. It's actually really helpful to read with other people and to have people that you can ask questions to. And to say, hey, what, what do you think about this passage? What about this? What do you know about this? Hey, can I get some help here? Like to read together, to talk about things. That's why meal groups and other study groups are so important because they place us in community that we read uh, communally, not just individually. They both actually matter. And then last thing here, read habitually, read holy, W-H, read um, humbly, and read holy, H-O-L-Y. And what I mean by that is that we read with the intent of becoming participants in the story. We read with the intent of being changed. We read with the intent of being transformed. 
That we, we, we come to the scriptures knowing that the Holy Spirit that breathed these words and oversees them is the same spirit that lives in us and helps us. Helps us to understand and helps us to live out. That we come to the text and read holy means that we read prayerfully. We read with the spirit. We read in faith. We read with the purpose of knowing and loving and serving God and his people. We approach the scriptures with an openness and a desire to have them cut us to the hearts, to expose lies, to expose things that are actually unhealthy for us or for others, to push us into new ways of living, new ways of being, to teach us something new about God, something new about ourselves, that we might live more fully into the story. We read not just for the sake of just saying, oh, we did it. We read saying, God, would you meet me in this moment? Would you change me? Would you teach me and show me who I am, who you are, and how you're inviting me to live? We read the intent of having the scriptures read us and read our lives and saying, oh, Father, forgive me. Father, help me. Yes, thank you. I'm encouraged. That's exactly what I needed. That was the wisdom. That was the strength. That was the inspiration I needed to go about and to do this thing that I feel like calling me to do. We read saying, here I am, Lord change me. We read in the same way that that song that Brian led us in, Holy Spirit, we surrender. I could come surrendering to the story, saying we want this story to be the dominant narrative in our lives. That's the Holy Spirit, help us. That's how we read.